Director of the Russia-Eurasia Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. It's great to see so many of you here. We have um, a really terrific discussion um, in store for you today. We're going to be talking about Russian strategic vision, but I think in the wake of uh, Friday's events and um, the G20 meeting, there's a lot to talk about in the context of how the fight against ISIS, how cooperation with the West, and how uh, Islamic uh, Jihadism fits in to Russia's vision and what that's going to mean for all of us going forward. We also have a brilliant panel, one half of which is stuck in traffic, but is only a few blocks away, um, which means that he should be ditching his car at any moment and just walking through the door. But um, we are very, very lucky to have here Ambassador Thomas Pickering, who uh, serves Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs uh, and as U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation, as well as a series of other countries. Um, and um, the other panelist, um, Michael Vickers, was Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict, as well as having had a career in the Army Special Forces. Um, both of these panelists know a tremendous amount about Russia, have spent a lot of time thinking about um, the implications of Russian strategic interests, Russian viewpoints, Russian tactics for U.S. goals and interests and approaches. And I think um, this is going to be a really, really interesting conversation. I also want to make sure that probably not all of you, but at least a few of you also have a chance to get engaged in the discussion. So I'm going to leave plenty of room for that. The way we're going to do this is I'm going to ask each panelist to speak for about 15 minutes, um, then to respond to one another, and then we'll open it up for discussion. So without further ado, I will turn this over to Ambassador Pickering. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you all very much for coming. I hope you can hear me. Um, I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure and an honor to uh, be with this group and to talk about Russia, something I've had an opportunity uh, to do a lot of thinking about. Um, my sense is that it would be useful this morning for me to address right off uh, the point that was just raised about the connection with Paris and Daesh with ISIS, and, and then talk a little bit about my sense of Russian strategy and, and where it is, and then maybe mention very briefly Ukraine and Syria. And to do all of that in the 15-minute period uh, is an inhuman accomplishment, and I don't pretend to be inhuman, but I'll do my best to end, because I'm anxious as you are to hear Mike, and I hope he makes it here uh, in the traffic this morning. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I thought John Brennan a moment ago addressed very well uh, the question of uh, ISIS and Daesh uh, and the problem that the Russians face. Uh, significant Chechen participation and interest with a real possibility of return to the Russian Federation to cause further problems. Uh, something uh, in the order of 20 million Muslim citizens of various varieties, but principally Sunni. Uh, a deep sense on the part of Mr. Putin, who's declared it as one of the many reasons why he has, in, in, in effect, involved himself in Syria in a preoccupation with this issue and the return of Russians. Um, a uh, cooperation uh, in the intelligence sphere with the United States, both in Sochi and beyond, uh, which the director of CIA just mentioned, is of mutual benefit and he intends to continue. And it seems to me all of that makes a lot of sense. 
It's one of those areas, along with the Iran negotiations, uh, perhaps space, uh, perhaps to a lesser extent the Arctic, where we have managed to put it this way, continue, if not salvage, some sense of cooperation with Russia, while at the same time deep differences have developed. So the deep differences, why? Uh, and what do I sense is Russia's strategy in dealing with the problem? I have to say that as I look over the area, Russia's strategy seems to be motivated by two principal factors. Uh, one, a, a deep sense of discouragement and unhappiness uh, for the 15-year period after the fall of communism with the way in which they handled themselves and were, put it this way, treated by the rest of the world, principally by the United States, and therefore an effort to regain stature. Stature that they believe is justified by their history, uh, by their previous roles, uh, I'm sure by the nuclear equation, uh, and as well by their uh, sense uh, that as the world's largest country geographically um, and its longstanding role uh, in things European and Asian, they ought to be a major player at the table. But I also have to say that there is a very strong sense of what my Latin friends would call personalismo, uh, surrounding Mr. Putin's own interests. And Mr. Putin is the last person who can be divorced from Russian strategy, if indeed, as I will question in a moment, it can be called strategy rather than strategies. Uh, but it is important to look at it this way uh, because I think for a time, uh, particularly with street demonstrations and with what I would have to say is the uncomfortably close election to the Duma uh, some five years ago or four and a half years ago, uh, Mr. Putin understood that perhaps his long-term future uh, in Russia, if not on the earth, depended upon his ability to find a new way to engage the Russian people uh, and the Russian state uh, in a sense that it uh, would devolve onto uh, strategies and approaches um, that emphasized Russian nationalism. And so we're in a period where Russian nationalism at the service of the leader, uh, and the leader not at the service of Russian nationalism, but the arbitrator and articulator of much of that is important. It resolved itself around several problems, one of which I think I've mentioned Russia's interest in being a major player at the world's tables. Uh, the second is obviously Russia's interest in having significant influence in the nearby surrounding region, particularly of the former Soviet Union. Uh, a kind of a natural sense on the Russians' part that in some ways uh, this was, if I could put it this way, their Western Hemisphere. Uh, and looking back in history, uh, they would like to see themselves moving in that direction. If not a Monroski doctrine, an effort to try to create space for them of a privileged character, which I think they have done, probably never really lost in some ways as we would examine uh, some of the relationships across the board, and some which they never had, particularly in the Baltics. And we need to be careful, obviously, of the variations in that. Uh, but I think those were questions that are very much important in Mr. Putin's mind. And there is a third, uh, and the third is probably one of the ones that has subsisted longest uh, and continues to be the most irritating for us, and that is ankle-kicking America. Uh, the notion that we may have put ourselves forward in a way that exposed our ankles is probably a reality. 
but the Russian uh, information program has made that a central feature, if I could call it, of Russia's approach to the world in 2015 and beyond. Uh, my own sense, however, is that the exaggerated use of ankle-kicking America uh, has in its own way uh, helped to create a new distance, uh, a new version in the Russian population of where things are. What are some of the difficulties with this approach and why isn't it a strategy so much as a stratagem or a tactic? I think there are several areas of deep lacuna that need to be looked at. Uh, would you buy a car from a gentleman whose record for the truth is distinctly in this day and age subject to deep question? I don't think I'd buy a new car or a used car from that kind of gentleman. And I wonder how many of the world's leaders reflect on that particular issue as they look at a man <coughs> with a large nuclear weapon program and, and with a lot of strength also wanting to be part uh, of the major international councils solving uh, the problems facing this world, whatever you might believe were their interests. I think there is a huge lacuna as well in the economic region, uh, almost as if it doesn't exist. Uh, certainly, one who's followed the Russian economy uh, for the last couple of months has got to be impressed by the extent of capital flight, uh, by the fall off on foreign direct investment, uh, by the decline in the ruble exchange rate against the dollar, <clears throat> by inflation that has picked up in, in many ways, uh, and by a number of other circumstances, which while they are having what I would call the beginnings of significant effects among the Russian population, are perhaps at this stage more subliminal in part because I have to ask you, if you were a Russian, and a gentleman called you on the telephone from a polling agency and said, how would you like to have a vote on Mr. Putin's popularity? I can't imagine what your answer might be under those circumstances. But I suspect that poll numbers are reasonably high because pressure is reasonably close to the surface on that particular issue. Not that I think in a way they're totally misleading because there have been uh, much, uh, uh, there has been much excitement, if I could put it this way, produced uh, by some of the pressures uh, that exist within the, the Russian domestic sphere on these kinds of questions. So let me then turn briefly to the region and to the Middle East. Uh, my own sense is that Crimea uh, and the portions of the eastern oblasts of Ukraine uh, have been part of the general policy, uh, part of the major effort. I think that the paradigm of the Cold War still survives, uh, that the U.S. and Russia uh, ought to and will do as much as conceivably possible to avoid a kind of conflict uh, which will lead the two of them to a nuclear confrontation which we spent so many years with the Soviet Union working hard to try to tamp down and avoid. And I think that hopefully that continues to remain uh, part of the paradigm. Uh, but it is significantly important that in a period now where the diversion is more significant, uh, we seek to do all that we can uh, to try to avoid accident, miscalculation, misjudgment, misapprehension, whatever you want to call it, that might put us on the road of something a great deal more difficult, uh, even perhaps leading to the catastrophic. 
And I've always believed if there was one-tenth of one-one-hundredth of one percent chance of something like that happening, uh, we ought to go the last mile uh, to make sure that it doesn't. I think that with respect to Ukraine, uh, my hope is that uh, the new focus on Syria now may well have left uh, the possibilities uh, for the kind of change uh, that couldn't help to improve the situation rather than to make it worse. With my fingers crossed, Minsk more or less seems to be holding, if not moving the process forward. Ukraine faces, as it has for the last three or four years, a big and deep domestic crisis, particularly in the economic area. Uh, my own sense is that it would be extremely important uh, if, in fact, uh, the major economic players in the international community, organizations such as the bank and the fund, the European Bank, the EU, uh, seek to find ways, perhaps in closer collaboration with major players, uh, to help uh, Poroshenko uh, deal with the myriad problems of his own economy, extending across the wide range from debt to corruption. Uh, and Ukraine needs help, uh, and badly that kind of fix, and in my view, it probably needs it more than non-lethal and lethal weapons under the present circumstance, and perhaps for some time in the past. Uh, whether uh, Ukraine over a period of time, economically and beyond, could become a bridge country that is not part of the EU, uh, and not part of the Russian sphere. Uh, but a country which plays in both directions is perhaps an ideal description of a future set of circumstances uh, that may well be uh, desirable, if not yet, or for some time achievable. But I think that's important. I think along with economic reform, uh, internal political reform in Ukraine is badly needed as well. Just the simple act of treating all Ukrainian citizens, regardless of linguistic group, in a fair and equal manner uh, is something Ukrainians have been working on for a time but not yet achieved. And certainly, Mr. Poroshenko will have to define over a period of time, sooner perhaps rather than later, his general views about autonomy. Uh, but those are some thoughts about where the process can come. Uh, the fact that Mr. Putin uh, is, in fact, still a major player in that region is important. I wonder whether the United States' abstention from an interest in the Normandy group is sufficient for the longer term, particularly given the challenges in Ukraine. In Syria, I think it has been extremely interesting uh, to see the Russian approach. Uh, certainly, on the one hand, the immediate reaction we all had, and I joined you in that, uh, was that it was a set of military activities designed to reassure President Assad that his recent losses of territory in the north in Idlib province and, and around the waste uh, between the Alawite region and Damascus were not going to be a, a permanent situation uh, with, in fact, his opposition uh, dividing Syria. Uh, some of that <coughs> has obviously had an anti-ISIS or Daesh dimension. Uh, but in my view, not yet sufficient to move it ahead. However, on the political side, it is very clear uh, that a combination of discussions between Secretary Kerry and Sergei Lavrov uh, led uh, to the two successive meetings we've had, not that they have produced miracles or indeed major new steps forward, 
but they have begun a political process that seemingly has the potential for weight. And the most interesting thing there had nothing to do with Russia, uh, but a great deal to do with Secretary Kerry's efforts uh, to convince Saudi Arabia not only to attend, but to attend with Iran in the same room. And while we don't like the necessarily uh, having those who in fact support uh, differing objectives from ours uh, in the Syrian conversation, including Russia, there is, in my view, inevitably no way to get around this. Uh, and the stepwise views for the future of Syria seem to me to be more increasingly shared, but no less intractable in terms of being able to achieve them. But after all, that's what diplomacy is supposed to do, uh, to take the inevitable uh, and the intractable and somehow make something out of them. Uh, but the steps are certainly, on the one hand, a transitional government of some sort in Syria, hopefully more technocratic uh, than it will be political, uh, but I wonder. Uh, the second is that government to work on the combination of ceasefires and co consolidating opposition to ISIS. Uh, that government, in my view, ought to be the first step in separating President Assad from governance. I can think of no better job for President Assad than to be the generalissimo of his own forces totally dedicated to fighting ISIS. Uh, I think the third step uh, is clearly the question of whether, over a period of time, uh, some kind of transitional government can begin to design a longer-term future for Syria. Uh, and then finally, whether that longer-term future. As the Iranians have suggested, interestingly, and as the Russians seemingly have agreed, uh, should be the subject of some kind of referendum or electoral arrangements among Syria, uh, perhaps in the end. Uh, that question of popular interest and will uh, will determine whether Mr. Assad stays or not. Uh, so Russia is in. Uh, Russia went in, I think, first to stabilize Assad, uh, maybe at the same time to reduce our leverage, uh, particularly uh, with the opposition groups that were not ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Uh, that has had a reverse reaction, I think, in uniting as never before the Syrian opposition, which we need to take advantage of. And finally, to hold cards at the negotiating table, which they do. Uh, no more, I think, or no less uh, than what they had perhaps before they went in, but nevertheless there, and that's brought us to a political process uh, which we have been struggling for three years to try to get and keep underway. Uh, my sense is that tactics still prevail, that there are big holes in how the Russians see their own strategy in the region, that much of that has to do with Russia's vision of its historical and future place in the international sphere. But much of what Mr. Uh, Putin uh, has in fact elaborated and articulated uh, runs in a number of cases directly contrary to that objective. And one wonders in fact whether uh, this is in part uh, a history uh, of his own role as an intelligence operative rather than a statesman uh, and whether in fact one can shed that skin uh, for a future new role uh, in uh, Russia and the world. Uh, we wait to see. So far, there are fewer signs of that than one would hope, uh, but there are clear indications that in some areas we can cooperate, in some areas we cannot. Our strategy needs to be 
certainly uh, avoiding uh, an inevitable conflict on the one hand, uh, but also a deep sense of commitment uh, buttressed in my view uh, with increasing toughness where that's necessary, uh, while at the same time uh, working on those problems that each side clearly considers to be of high national interest and therefore a win-win variety, while at the same time it seeks either to contain or sublimate uh, the regions or areas of deep differences so that in fact the Hippocratic Oath of first do no harm applies to them as much as we possibly can do so. I think that's 15 minutes plus. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. I thought that was... I thought that was a fantastic overview of um, just kind of a, a global uh, tour of Russian views and interests. Um, I'm going to take my moderator's prerogative and I'm going to ask, actually ask two questions. Um, I'll save a couple of others for later, just in case I get the opportunity. Um, one question is really on the prospects for cooperation in Syria, not from the standpoint of can we find something to agree on, but from the standpoint of what are we actually willing to share with them. We've had um, promises to cooperate, particularly in counterterrorism with the Russians in the past, and they've been flummoxed uh, to some extent by the fact that we don't actually feel comfortable sharing information with them. I would argue that in Syria, where they are in a clear and close and of coalition with the Iranians, we'd have every reason to think that anything we give to Moscow is going to end up in Tehran. So what are we going to be willing to share with Moscow, and how can we how can we cooperate in the context of distrust that really does go both ways for very good reasons? And then my second question is, um, what do we do about the ankle kicking? Do we ignore it? Because it seems to me that the ankle kicking actually tends to drive at least some in the US political space to want to respond, um, if not in kind, uh, perhaps with a little bit of escalation. Um, and while it all seems very minor, it does run a very strong risk of making cooperation, coordination, and other areas untenable. Um, thanks. Very much on the Syrian question, I think there are two aspects to that question. What do we do on the ground in Syria, particularly? And then what do we do in the political process that has begun um, and is now kind of moving on? Uh, on the ground, my sense is that uh, we need to be fairly clear, and I wish we had been clearer earlier, uh, that we're there to protect and do what's necessary to keep the Russians away from bombing uh, the people that we support. Um, and while they've had the, uh, the opportunity to try to use ambiguities that they've created around Jabhat al-Nusra uh, and other Al-Qaeda affiliates, uh, my view is that we should have very early on done two things. Uh, we have, in effect, a de facto no-fly zone in Syria wherever the U.S. Navy and Air Force are flying. And that's been established since we were bombing. Uh, and my sense is that it would have been much uh, the wiser thing first to do to say when they came in first to the Syrians, we don't want to see you anywhere. We're going to be flying over all of Syria on a regular basis, and we're not telling you where or when, so stay out. Uh, the second would have been to go to the Russians and said, look, um, 
we're not uh, going to uh, be in a position where we're going to ignore our uh, flights over the areas where you're bombing. So please stay away. Use deconfliction as a creative policy effort to keep them off the back of the people uh, that we think need to be protected. The third is a rather interesting one. The Russians have said to us, please tell us where we uh, shouldn't bomb. Uh, and of course, obviously, that's not in our interest to do that. But we should tell them what area we want them to stay out of. And then I have no reason to designate for them in that area where the ISIS targets are. Uh, to me, that's a simple answer to the question of how to move ahead. I think finally, uh, if in fact, although I don't think it has, uh, the Russian attacks have continued with the kind of degree of determination and vehemence that was initially present against the people uh, that we support and believe are the future for Syria. Uh, and we should make that clear to the Russians, that there will be uh, no future for Syria around Assad, it's clear. And there'll be no future for Syria around ISIS or Daesh that these are the people that they, in the long run, will have to be determined uh, to somehow get along with if they wish to have a future in Syria. But secondly, my own view is that the Afghan solution of the 1980s to deal with Russian air power, and that was essentially surface-to-air missiles, uh, may well have to be the tougher response if, in fact, this keeps up. And I know that gives people shivers. I know that people are unhappy. But we now have technical solutions to what I would call uh, the long-term misuse of those particular weapons against civilian airliners. So it's not the kind of problem that it was in, in Afghanistan and post-Afghanistan. I don't know that it's a perfect answer. That's not my bailiwick. But I hear it's much better. Uh, and that would give us reason to move it. Well, on the political side, uh, my sense is that uh, Assad has really no chance of winning here. Uh, and we need to begin to convince the Russians and the Iranians, although the Iranians profess to be supported, uh, that a move that does two things at one time uh, begins to create a new structure for the, put it this way, even temporary governance of Syria on the one hand, uh, and then work with them very closely on the question of how and in what way ceasefires can take place. Um, if they don't like the fact that Mr. Assad has lost ground, uh, then a ceasefire at least gives us the opportunity on a temporary basis to say, okay, uh, let's hold off in those areas, but only on the condition that the forces in those areas refocus their attention on ISIS, which is a big problem for us both. And so I think that's important on the political side. Uh, on uh, the issue uh, of Russian bad behavior and ankle kicking of the United States, um, I do think we need, once again, to find a way uh, to get to the Russian people to crack through uh, this barrage of what I would call, if not propaganda, highly inflated information uh, to uh, now assail them on a regular basis. Um, and we have the capacity to do that, whether it's through our own broadcasting, British broadcasting, uh, Radio Free Europe and Liberty, the kinds of things that we've used in past, certainly at much greater exploitation of the technology of the internet, uh, all of the things you know about that, that, that I know about that can help us reach the Russian people. I think secondly, uh, we ought to be in the position 
uh, of making public statements when exaggerated questions come through on a regular basis as we did uh, in the worst days of the Cold War. The third piece, I think, that's quite important here, uh, but it fits on the other side of the ledger, uh, is that we should be, put it this way, more proactive in, in putting positions on the table uh, that go to the question of the, the major areas of mutual interest. The Soviet Union the United States had a mutual interest in preventing uh, serious nuclear conflict. Russia has exactly the same. Each of us is improving our nuclear forces. I think some careful judgment about whether what we are doing is, put it this way, uh, carefully calibrated to meet the current situation or runs over the line of exaggeration is one aspect. But the more important one is that a year and a half ago, uh, the president let it be known that we would go to 1,000 or 900 delivery vehicles and weapons on each side. I think it's important to remind the world, if not the Russians, that that's there on the table, uh, that it is a step that can be taken, uh, that particularly uh, we need to be careful to assure that while we're tough on the issues where we have real objections, we have not, and out of that sense of toughness, closed the door to the places where we have also mutual interests in working together as long as it is clear that it is possible to do that. And I think that kind of a policy would make sense. Uh, it is, in effect, sort of what we're doing, but I think it needs to be gathered together and perhaps articulated in a way that is perhaps more self-evident, uh, clear, and direct than it is now. All right, thank you very much. Uh, great answers. Uh, I'm going to open it up to the audience. Um, and uh, the white shirt. Yes, I'm Hong from the Norwegian Broadcasting, former Sovietologist and correspondent to Moscow. Uh, I have a question concerning uh, the cooperation between the U.S. and Russia with regard to the Syrian strategy. First, um, uh, Kerry himself said that, or admitted that one of the that the U.S. have now you know now abstained from uh, demanding assets uh, retirement. That was uh, the, that has been a precondition in Syrian negotiation. He dropped it, and he also explained why in Vienna on Saturday. Do you think that is a position? the U.S. should stick to all through the negotiations eventually if they will take place uh, between the opposition and the Assad regime. And what is the possible cost of that? How, secondly, how do you see Russia's real intentions with regard to Assad as a person, his personal role? There have been rumors that Russians are willing to let him go. It's not the most important thing for Russia that he should remain as a president or as a main player. How do you regard that? Uh, and finally, uh, you, you were touching upon the question about military cooperation, non-cooperation, denial. Uh, well, given that the situation is that it is, that train has already gone uh, with the total denial of Russian use of Syrian airspace. Uh, where should the US go from here with regard to uh, coordination cooperation? Thank you. All three very good questions, and thank you very much. I think that uh, the early notion, in large measure, realistically put forward to deal 
with concerns on the part of the Syrian opposition of our fidelity to them and from Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states um, that we needed to be 100% against Assad. Uh, and we had huge public support for that. That Assad had to disappear before we could begin a political process of conversation about the future of Assad uh, was not, in my view, clearly consistent with the diplomatic realities, if I could phrase it that way. And I suspect that's been true of Secretary Kerry's belief for some time, but what he had to say in Vienna, I think, explicates that a little more clearly. That you cannot, as a part of a political process, demand a kind of concession up front from the other side that is really the subject of the process, unless, of course, you've occupied their country fully and are now determining their policies. And I don't think that's the case. So I think that that's important. I think that. With respect to the future of Assad, um, on the one hand, uh, my sense is that both Iran uh, and Russia will say not as much sotto voce as they have in the past, and that the future of their interest in Syria and the relationship with Syria <clears throat> does not depend upon Assad's uh, perpetual existence as the leader of the country so much as it depends upon a country uh, that they believe they can have comfortable relations with over a long period of time. And so from their perspective, Assad is not the key. What they have asked, um, and they put it on the table as a reasonable question, is who takes his place? Well, in effect, uh, Assad father and son have spent the last 35 years making sure there is nobody around to take their place. And so in effect, it is a difficult question for us to pull the rabbit out of the hat and answer right away. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that there are no individuals in Syria uh, who in some way cannot rise to the task of becoming the future government of the country. We all have, in fact, change in our own political circumstances. And in modern democracies, it's sometimes a fact of life that the indicated candidate for the presidency doesn't always succeed, as we know. And so I think we have to go back and look at that again. Uh, it does, however, argue uh, the question of when. Uh, and while when, from the point of view of the opposition to Assad, quite understandably, uh, is now uh, and not in two to three years, uh, when, as a matter of potential negotiating reality, reality, balancing the leverages there, particularly against the backdrop of the tremendously important problem uh, brought home to us again over the weekend in a very serious way of ISIS, uh, means that as we sit down and look at the priorities, uh, we obviously have to incorporate uh, both the question of the future of Syria uh, and the issue of dealing with ISIS as helpful solutions to part of the same problem. I would be the last to say that I know how long it should be but I know it shouldn't be infinite. Uh, and I know, in effect, that the answer to the question of the future of Syrian governance has to be in one way or another in the hands of the people of Syria in a more representative way and not necessarily the immediate, in, in the, the immediate imposition uh, of someone with a new Napoleonic bent. Uh, Frieda Denger, American Leader of Global Security at American University. 
in light of the situation in Ukraine, would you say that the European or broader transatlantic security is only possible together with Russia rather than against it? And if that is the case, where would you start? Thank you very much. Look, it is difficult to see, if I understand your question correctly, the future of Ukraine uh, that is somehow entirely uh, divorced from Russia and its influence. On the other hand, I think the opposite is clearly true, that the future of Ukraine cannot divorce Ukrainians or indeed the friends of Ukraine in Europe from that future. And so one sees, in fact, uh, that as an issue uh, which very much fits uh, in the diplomacy of the table as opposed to the success in one side or another of the military activities that have been undertaken in the past and have been so damaging and dangerous uh, both to Ukraine and Ukrainians, but even more, I think, to the stability uh, and safety and solidity uh, of Europe, which is already taxed uh, by uh, certainly major economic circumstances. Uh, so my suggestion about Normandy is not, in a sense, an effort to propose a U.S. intrusion on something that the Europeans are doing well, uh, but to find a way to broaden uh, the set of conversations that has led to several Minsks uh, to something that begins to address, if I could call it, a broader way uh, out for the future. Uh, and so ideas of a bridge country, ideas of whether Ukraine could have relations both east and west in an economic sense, certainly. Uh, where Ukraine should go with respect to the very sensitive and difficult issue of membership in the EU, uh, in NATO, and other questions, in my view, should be something that should be part and parcel of that kind of conversations in which the Ukrainians uh, should be there and at the table and play a very important role. I think to go back to Syria, uh, there are no Syrians at Vienna. Sometime, maybe there need to be in some way uh, to move the question ahead. Uh, although now I think we're talking about a framework, hopefully, under which Syrians can get to Vienna. I would hope that Minsk and Normandy uh, could evolve uh, into the kind of diplomatic process, uh, maybe as, uh, put it this way, unrealistic as it may seem now, that can deal with the problem. Because we have seen, both in Syria and Ukraine, that pure military action doesn't determine a result. It, it might determine leverages at various times that could help or hurt achieving a political result, uh, but the notion that the political result has to be the center of concentration, in my view, is a clear lesson uh, of what we have been through uh, rather than just the wild idea of a former diplomat. Um, up front here in the center. Uh, Sydney Freeberg, Breaking Defense. To follow up on Dr. Oliver's question a bit, uh, you know, the intelligence cooperation between us and Russia that Director Brennan mentioned, uh, how easy is it in practice to quarantine that from the wider issues of distrust, from the many policy differences, and say, okay, we're going to work together, as you say, we're going to keep some doors open. 
And I'm curious also what the history is compared to the Cold War, you know, when we had a very stable framework in two countries, but then again, a lot of the terrorists were being directly funded by Moscow or Moscow's proxies. Do we have this kind of counterterrorism dialogue despite many other differences then? I think it's a very good question. First and foremost, uh, my sense is so far, we have not entered into the range where anything that is done on the Russian side is immediately opposed by the US um, and vice versa. Uh, this happens to be, of course, in the nature of the situation presently in Capitol Hill. So I'm not sure, in fact, that it will be escaped in the <coughs> Russia-US relationship. But nevertheless, let us hope so. Uh, secondly, it does seem to me uh, that in areas where uh, cooperation can take place, it's been in our mutual interest to do so. Uh, one of the most formidable of which was Iran, uh, where the American negotiators in their public statements under questioning uh, quite often said clearly that at times the Russians had been tougher than the United States in dealing with the Iranians on key questions of the negotiations. Uh, which I assume is still a reflection of the fact that natural, national interest is an important part of the determinant of how each of us looks at the question, not pure opposition to the other side. Uh, the Cold War had much of the latter, uh, but over a period of time, particularly uh, beginning in the Kennedy administration, when both sides had a clear realization uh, that the disaster that could be wreaked on the world as well as themselves by a nuclear uh, use uh, on either side uh, had to be avoided, uh, began to produce, at least put it this way, an island of some kind of discussion leading to cooperation, leading to various steps which were important. Uh, this is the reason why I suggested a minute ago that in dealing with ankle kicking, it may be useful at some point to revive this kind of conversation. Uh, whether it concerns uh, further reductions of delivery vehicles and maybe weapons themselves, which I think is very much in the offing, <coughs> or whether it could escape the bounds of the kind of differences that have arisen over cooperation on missile defense, uh, which in my view, certainly things like the exchange of information would be a useful starting place to deal with that question. Those, at this point, have not loomed up on the horizon as being, uh, put it this way, indicated. So we're in a situation, in fact, where we have, put it this way, two baskets. Uh, basket A is differences, and basket B is agreements. Can we find a way uh, to enlarge B at the expense of A, or use B to help us contain what I would call uh, more difficult confrontational and reactional and, and reacting uh, aspects of those issues in, in B. And I think that's the new challenge for Putin and for us. Uh, and it comes when uh, the signal in Ukraine, temporarily at least, is uh, okay. We're approaching some kind, perhaps, of status quo. I, I would be the last to say that is a permanent condition, but it may be helpful to build on. And the second question is that in Syria, uh, are we moving from confrontation to quagmire to cooperation, 
uh, or are we merely in a position where each side for the moment uh, is treating the problem still diplomatically um, as important enough not to abandon and go back to military force. Uh, as I said, uh, people will in some ways uh, want to know uh, how much the Russians are guided in all of this by their national interest and how much they're guided uh, by uh, leaderships, uh, put it this way, uh, uh, special uh, uh, circumstances. Uh, my view is none of that is yet clear. They're all part of, the, of, of a difficult background with which to contend, which is perhaps a good reason why we're having this conversation today and why all of you have managed to stay this long. <laughs> Keep going back and forth and question. Uh, Ryan Tepperman. Ambassador, um, over the past three years, the tendency in the U.S.-Russia relationship has been toward one of more antagonism and confrontation. Do you believe that will continue over the next three years, or is that susceptible to significant change? Yeah, another great question. Um, I find predictions at this stage on the future of U.S.-Russian relations particularly hard as you've seen. Uh, and my, my sense is that there are a few signs that we might be able to take advantage of some of these recent developments by expanding the envelope. But I think nothing is guaranteed. And I think that we, it, this one, uh, ought to continue to put it this way, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Uh, and see what we can do. After all, diplomacy exists to turn challenges into opportunities. There's slim pickings out there on this one, but there are a few pieces to pick up on, and I would certainly concentrate, as I think Secretary Kerry is, on those pieces. Um, the uh, woman uh, kind of center, Mr. Sandy Swarzbach from the Weapons Center at Channel 8. Um, one of the comments that I haven't heard, and maybe it's, we're not supposed to get into it, but I was wondering if you could provide some insights into what you see between what's going on in Russia and what's going on in China, as the Russians have not, are not the only power in that part of the world, and certainly Mr. Putin has a rival in the hegemonic rise of China, and he has an, either an ally or a power that would be Another one of the kind of great uncertainties. My own feeling is that historically, uh, Russia and China have managed to get along, but without the notion that uh, was originally put it this way, implicit in our own reaction uh, to China's rev revolution and the victory of communism, that Mr. Stalin and his successors would forever uh, be the major players in that set of arrangements. And I think very early on, uh, Chairman Mao uh, and his successors understood uh, that China had an independent role in the world community. Uh, and was not going to be part of Soviet hegemony. Uh, and this led, uh, I think, to a combination of difficult circumstances, including pitched battles on the Amur River frontier, 
Um, and then uh, an opportunity uh, opened to the United States in 1971 uh, to repair the gap in our relationships with China. Uh, much of what I would call uh, the mutuality of Russian-Chinese interests um, and as well uh, the deeply entrenched conflict about who runs what are present in uh, Russian-Chinese relations today uh, and have not worked their way out in any particular direction except neither side sees any advantage in military confrontation. They see advantages in continued trade. Uh, they see advantages in sticking together, particularly in the United Nations, over sets of issues that come up uh, especially when the Security Council uh, has to look into the questions of the use of force. A deep Chinese aversion, in fact, to seeing the Security Council move in that direction, despite their veto and their ability to be able to use that to prevent it happening. Uh, and so while Russia sells military equipment, experts say it's slightly dumbed down so that, in fact, Russia doesn't set it, suffer put it this way, a significant military advantage through its own sales. Uh, a high Chinese dependence on Russia for energy, and I think that will increase. It's the, clear, the clearest local uh, source of, of uh, supply, both gas and oil, in that part of the world. And China seems at least destined to be highly dependent on imported energy for some period of time to come. Uh, particularly if, in fact, uh, the Paris Conference on Climate Change can convince them rather than to expand uh, the use of coal, it's time to back out. Uh, and so Russia has, put it this way, ready to hand the first step, put it this way, energy alternative to provide to the Chinese as they go back. So we can see all of these things there. I think one of the reasons why Russia continues uh, to want to have uh, in its nuclear arsenal so many tactical weapons is its own deep sense of vulnerability along the long Chinese frontier, where in fact uh, the population balance uh, and those under arms are so imbalanced as to cause it to believe that it has to have that kind of, put it this way, readily apparent uh, open deterrent uh, to the relationship. So it will be one that will tax American diplomacy uh, to develop what I would call as strong relations as it can with both sides, uh, rather than to be engaged in a process which inadvertently or advertently uh, drives the two together. We have no interest in being present in a world where Russia, China, uh, close cooperation uh, is a determined uh, adversary to U.S. interests. Uh, I think uh, most people tend to believe that's much less of a possibility happening than it is that one or the other of them on their own will become that kind of problem, which is just to sketch out another challenge for American policy. Thank you. Um, already, uh, right over there. Sir, hi, George Nicholson with the Global Special Operations Foundation. Admiral Bill McRaven, who was a former SOCOM commander, had a quote 
that we can surge forces, but we can't surge trust. A couple of months ago, I asked Mike Morrell, former deputy director of the CIA, would he comment on that? And he paused and says, I'm going to quote, quote what George Shultz said. One, you've got to have a clearly articulated security strategy with goals and objectives. Two, you've got to implement that strategy. And then he paused and said, three, you've got to carry a big stick. In terms of our perception around the world by our allies, uh, do you think there's an increasing problem with the perception that we're going to do what we're going to say and that we're going to trust the problem? I think we've had, uh, put it this way, a trust problem in spades since Iraq, particularly in the Middle East. And I think the polls have shown that. I was ambassador to Jordan in 74 to 78. Uh, and Jordan used to rank high in support of the United States. At one point, it was down to 3% popularity in a country like Jordan. I think it's coming back. I don't think it's come back perfectly. It never will. Uh, I think there are real problems, obviously, uh, in any administration uh, which uh, puts it this way, over-promises and under-delivers. I think that's a kind of standard watchword of how governments have to proceed uh, and where they can go and what they can do. Uh, we have lots of challenges. Uh, my own sense is that I would never argue, particularly as an American diplomat, that we should have a second-class military and a third-class economy. Uh, nor do would I argue that it is time for us to abandon the basic principles in our Constitution and history uh, merely because we were attacked and have to fight a war. I think we have a double duty, if I could put it this way, to ourselves and to the American community uh, to base our future on those questions. And so as a diplomat, I would totally agree with you uh, that we need to be firm when it calls, the time calls for that, because without firmness, there is no leverage. And I have <coughs> a few thoughts of where I think, particularly in the Syrian case, we might do so. I think in Ukraine, together with NATO, we have to do it. But I also believe that uh, in dealing with these kinds of difficulties, uh, you've got to c combine your firmness and strength with sketching out the doors you want the problem to move through. Merely keeping the heat on in the pressure cooker and welding the valve shut is not an answer to the problem. And we have a tendency, perhaps, to do that more often than we should. Uh, in the back, uh, standing. Thank you. Leandra Bernstein with Sputnik International News. Uh, you mentioned providing surface-to-air missiles to, I'm assuming, Syrian opposition. Uh, that the United States would do that. Uh, what makes you so confident in that approach, particularly given the fact that U.S. munitions have fallen into the hands of ISIS before or been just handed over in certain cases? Well, I didn't sketch out the full elements of my idea, but first and foremost, I would say only if, in fact, the present situation, or at least the early stages of the Russian use of weapons against people that we were going to rely upon, and seemingly they 
for the long-term future of Syria continue. Uh, secondly, my sense is there are technical arrangements which can prevent the weapons from being used if they fall into the wrong hands. Uh, thirdly, my sense would be that to whomever we provide the weapons, we ought to be as sure as we possibly can, uh, and that obviously has not been the lesson of recent days, that in fact they know how to use them, know how to care for them, and know how to protect them. Uh, but I think that that's a big step, uh, but it was a, a step that had, put it, put it this way, quite a remarkable impact in Afghanistan. Uh, here now. <coughs> uh, Peter Sharfman, Mining Corporation. From one point of view, it looks as though Putin is trying to recreate not what made the Soviet Union strong, but what made the Soviet Union collapse. Uh, the economic troubles combined with a foreign adventure that is distinctly unpromising. Uh, combined with uh, all kinds of problems with the effectiveness and morale of the population. So would you speculate on what Putin would do if he starts to realize that things are going wrong and getting worse and worse? Uh, Peter, it's a very important question, and I think the interesting comparison is apt, uh, and one we should look at, and obviously, there is also the question of international distrust of the leadership that uh, one way or another is part of what I would call the downside of the present Russian non-strategy because it cannot be a strategy to replicate things which in one way or another led to the, to the disaster that beheld the success of the previous regime in terms of its continuance in power. Um, and I think that uh, it is in, in my view, long since time that this issue should be recognized. And it is not a hidden question in Russia. Uh, someone as prominent but is now firmly out of government as former finance minister and deputy prime minister Putin uh, called this to Mr. Putin's attention in a public discussion uh, in a newspaper article, I believe, some months ago. Uh, it did not have the intended result. You can lead a horse to water, we know that, uh, and so we're very much at that stage of the question. Uh, Mr. Putin appears to believe, uh, as he did back uh, in other previous crises, uh, that Russia is financially secure enough and sound enough, according to what he has to say, uh, to withstand the onslaught. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, in the past, he's overestimated the durability, if I could put it this way, of Russian foreign exchange holdings. Uh, and they came around to bite him. Uh, and he did get into difficulty. That may be the first, but I have to tell you that my credentials as an economist are lower than low. And so I will only leave those brief remarks with you and depend on you and others to tell us what the real world is. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Joel Osterman from American Enterprise. Mr. Ambassador, I was actually part of the group that brought you to Tufts, um, Tufts University uh, last February and March. So it's great to hear you speak again. 
So um, a few weeks ago, Maxim uh, Trudeau-Yubov had a piece in the New York Times uh, talking about how President Putin views everything from the 2012 Bologna protests to the color revolutions and the Arab Spring and the Euromaidan and even Daesh itself as part and parcel of the same phenomenon of American orchestrated attempts to create political authority outside of where it properly belongs in the hands of a strong, recognized, legitimate, and Russia-friendly state. Um, as many commentators have talked about, the Putin administration sees any success of extra-state political structures as a threat to the Kremlin by virtue of being a possible inspiration in Russia, if not in Moscow, then perhaps in Grozny or in Khachkal in Dagestan or in Lushetim, um, for people in those places to rise up against their own highly corrupt and repressive authorities. So even after the attacks in Paris and the likely plane bombing over uh, Sinai, how has this calculus meaningfully changed? What reason do we have uh, to believe that Putin will in any way alter his efforts to make the choice in Syria um, anything other than between Assad and Daesh al-Nusra, just like he's endeavored to cast the choice in Ukraine as between Russian-backed authorities and Nazis? I think that uh, Mr. Brennan would not have been surprised, uh, but maybe shocked a little bit by the Russian conclusion that we were responsible in one way or another for all of the color revolutions. But it does seem to be part and parcel of the uh, current public ethic in Russia about the United States and the ankle kicking. Uh, my own sense is that the reality is much uh, different and much, put it this way, uh, more problematic. Uh, and what we have seen going on in the Arabic-speaking world and beyond uh, is, as uh, Director Brennan said just a moment ago, uh, a part and parcel of people's objection to the kind of regimes that have been put in over them, rather than the articulation of foreign intelligence services uh, activities uh, to bring about regime change. Uh, the long history of American efforts in this, in this issue have not covered themselves with success or glory. Uh, and in many ways, I think uh, the notion that we are responsible and behind those kinds of activities uh, is yet another exaggeration. Uh, I didn't point to it in my opening <coughs> remarks because I thought it was self-evident to a crowd like this that it was not a very realistic way to look at the problem. Uh, the answer to this obviously in various countries lies in the hands uh, of those who don't like what they have in the way of government and will want to undertake the efforts to change it. And we all know authoritarian governments, this is their first article of deepest concern uh, that these kinds of issues will arise. I think that your referral to, color, to, to opposition in Russia 2011, 2012, 2013 is part and parcel of why Mr. Putin is reacting the way he is, and that was, I hope, a fundamental point of the original uh, discussion we had here today. 
what to do about that is a lot harder <laughs> in terms of a challenge, which I think uh, was very much part of your question. Uh, my own sense is that uh, we have no good answers. Uh, we clearly would like to see the broadest possible spread of democracy, not necessarily of one variety of another, but where people are given an honest opportunity to make choices about their own future and governance under systems where uh, the freedoms exist for them to be able to do that and live their lives in a meaningful and, and, and open way, and where economic activities have a chance to prosper uh, and so on. Uh, that has not, however, been something that we have found a silver bullet or magic formula to propound. Where we have found it works best is where advocates for that kind of future in their own country have had the opportunity uh, to make their way within the political system in one set of circumstances or another. But I don't see this as, put it this way, a growing wave of the future. Rather, I see a kind of backlash, a counter set of movements uh, taking place in two, two, in two different ways. One, um, a, a resumption of more authoritarian rule uh, in some places through a combination of persuasion and funding. Uh, on the other, um, a development even, even more radicalized points of view about how the future should be determined and most of those or many of those on theological grounds, uh, all of which I think we have deep concerns about, particularly as they have, put it this way, totally run off the rails of humanity, justice, and, ethic and ethical behavior. So I've done a great job describing the problem as you have, but I wish I could tell you I thought you were clear answers. Uh, most of the Mike Morrow, I'm sorry. Um, most of the conversations keep focusing on the motivations of being geopolitical. But given actions of Putin, like Kaliningrad, uh, Crimea, uh, the land bridge in eastern Ukraine, uh, could some of the motivations be more basic, like just access to Mediterranean ports? Well, you know, it's an old theory about Russia, warm water ports. My, uh, my sense is that a combination of global warming and ice breaking <laughs> probably better answers to that problem uh, than Russian expansionism. I think there is a personal portion of the equation that's out there that's very significant in terms of where Russia is going, but I think also the notion uh, that Russia would like to have preponderant or at least highly significant influence in nearby areas uh, fits uh, a view of uh, Russia's own national interest and aspirations that is very much a player in these circumstances. Um, and as we know, uh, where uh, a country uh, has a uh, preponderance of military force in a local region, uh, we found that out in 1956 in Berlin and in Budapest and in 68 uh, in Prague, uh, not the greatest examples of what I would call a howling success uh, for democratic change in the world, uh, we had to end up living with them, and I suppose those models were <coughs> far from Mr. Putin's mind as he looked at Crimea and eastern Ukraine. I think that 
with respect to eastern Ukraine, happily, uh, the pushback ability was not zero uh, and has brought about what one can see, at least at this stage, is a kind of stalemate uh, along uh, geographic lines which are far from perfect, but which might be worked with uh, in a future uh, political effort to see where this process goes, because I don't think there's a military solution. Um, I just had a general, a general question on Gus Alzona, uh, happens to be a candidate for Congress in Maryland. Uh, how would you advise the leading presidential candidates regarding what um, you think uh, would be in the, in terms of pursuing poli foreign policy, which would be in the best interest of the American people? Well, I was a foreign service officer for 40 some years and learned that my advice is given uh, in a closed room uh, under classified rules. Uh, my sense is that much of what I've said this afternoon uh, might, uh, and for some accident of publicity, be available uh, to uh, people who aspire to the presidency. Uh, and uh, I hope they could make some sense out of it, because that's what I've tried to do. Thank you. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Since you have it. Yes, um, I'm Siri Khan. Um, I think one of the main problems with Russia and the United States is that we don't know really who are moderate uh, rebels or terrorists and who are really hardliners. And we know that this is pretty fluid. Sometimes one day they're moderate, the next day they're uh, not so moderate. So uh, I probably this question was supposed to be to CIA, uh, Mr. Bremen. I'm sure that the people we are financing and providing arms uh, and moral support, political support, are the real pro-democracy, pro-Western allies, or they will turn like Taliban. We also support <coughs> Taliban in Afghanistan, and we know what happened after that. This on Syria. On Ukraine, um, <coughs> I like what you said about uh, the future development of Ukraine, but a few days ago, uh, Congress voted, and I think Obama signed the law, providing 50 million of lethal arms to Ukraine. This is a time when there's sort of kind of a shaky ceasefire. Do you think it's a smart policy to provide lethal arms to Ukraine when there's still some probably going to some directions that you mentioned? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Edward, very much. Uh, on moderates and terrorists, uh, as you know, particularly in the Cold War, uh, one country's terrorists were another country's freedom fighters. Uh, but beheadings, in my view, are not moderate beheaders. So I think we can make pretty easy judgments about that particular question. Uh, it is true, I think, that the recruitment efforts of ISIS have been successful uh, in part among moderates, in part because ISIS, Jabhat al-Nusra, and other organizations of a more extremist variety showed more propensity to fight against Assad, and therefore they were able to draw people up. Uh, I think that that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, I think as we've seen, at least temporarily, Mr. Putin has helped to drive those people together. Uh, and the issue obviously has to be carefully looked at uh, by uh, those people who are in charge of distributing uh, U.S. military support uh, before they jump in. 
Um, my own feeling is they probably have erred on, on the side of prudence rather than the other way around in dealing with these people in Syria. I think on Ukraine and $50 million in lethal assistance, uh, I suppose that uh, my own feeling would have been it would have been better a lot earlier where it might have made a bigger difference. Although I'm not sure how much Ukraine actually lacked for lethal weapons. Uh, they were pretty well provided with the kinds of things uh, that might be most useful uh, along uh, the battle lines in Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, my own sense is that, as I said at the beginning, uh, the real reforms and the major efforts perhaps should best start with the economy and the associated developments around that, both political and otherwise, that can help to rebuild and reinvigorate uh, in Ukraine an effective and working economy and the kind of polity uh, that those who favor Ukraine tell us is already in place, but obviously still lacks some repair. Uh, we are just about out of time, so I'm going to ask the ambassador if he has any final thoughts. Yeah. And then we'll Well, thank you very much for coming and sticking with me. Uh, I apologize that Mike was not able to escape the traffic. Uh, if I were smart, I probably would still have been there myself. But it's been an honor and a pleasure to see you all. Thank you for your penetrating and, I think, very important questions. And my apologies if I was not succinct, positive, and absolutely convincing in every respect of what we should do in a very difficult and challenging situation. Please, please